not necessarily the technical SME, but um, the person uh, who is managing a series of technicians and figuring out how to make it all come together. Currently, I'm serving as the first core G6. So in the Army, we have four core, um, pretty powerful organization, uh, war fighting organization, and the G6 is really the communications section that's kind of driving towards, uh, I would say, a mission employment, mission enablement, mission insurance. Uh, I thought this panel was interesting because um, for us, uh, Army signaliers, we're normally used to having a boot on the back of our neck saying, make it work. And largely have for a long time ignored um, some of the principles of secure, cybersecurity that are incredibly important. And I would say the, uh, the war that we've been in over the past 20 years, for 20 years, we had um, not necessarily a near-peer competitor that we were operating against. Um, we, did, we did struggle some, but not in the way that we would um, moving forward. So uh, we are in the process of implementing um, the first couple of pillars of a zero-trust architecture. And that's difficult for an organization that has largely ignored perimeter defense for a large part of the years and, and do it only typically to, I'm being honest here, so you know, if you say that I said something, I'm gonna say I didn't, okay, so. <laughs> but, but doing it in to pass um, inspections, doing it for exercises, et cetera. Uh, and so leading a workforce to start to change their mindset on the importance of cybersecurity baked into everything that you're doing, setting up a global WAN, tapping into commercial black core transport, setting up um, persistent hybrid information environments where you have on-premise edge compute, you have stuff in the hyperscale, and you're also connecting your legacy equipment, right? So public-private clouds, multiple cloud providers, cybersecurity becomes incredibly important. For a very long time, there used to be sort of a dividing line where the warfighters used very small or limited pieces of equipment, and that was considered very tactical in nature, and um, probably not managed as tightly as it probably should have been. Above the line on the enterprise networks, um, you know, very strict cybersecurity, and the two never shall meet. And so that's kind of ended today because what we've recognized across all of DOD, does anybody know, does anybody know what a, a kill chain is? So I'll, ver very briefly, right? So it's the ability to see a target, sense it, identify it, and fire on it, okay? And so your ability to close that, right, from seeing it all the way to firing on it is called a kill chain. Well, none of the services today can close the kill chains on their own. And you can't do it with just the tactical equipment you have. So now, your networks must touch. And if they must touch, they must be secure. And if I, in the Army, want to understand what someone in the Air Force can see but cannot fire on, now we're talking about getting down to that data layer. And so that is the heart and soul of what Zero Trust seeks to implement. How many people know something about Zero Trust in the room? Do you know something about it? A little bit about it? Heard about it? Okay. 
I wouldn't say I'm a technical expert on it, but from a leader perspective, I understand that it's all about who do you trust? What do you trust? It's no longer you, for instance, let's talk about your identity here, right? This is your, your badge. You walked in this room, somebody scanned it, you came into this hallway, and now you have unfettered access to this entire area right here. The question is, is that really you? Do you normally come into the room at this time of day? Do you normally access it at this time? Should you be looking through all that information? Should you have that information at that time of day on that certain network? That's what Zero Trust seeks to implement. So no longer, it's really based on a set of qualities and identities that you have at that time when you're trying to access it. So I might be fine accessing certain information from my um, government furnished equipment sitting in my office. But when I go to Bora Bora and I'm trying to access it over VPN um, from commercial internet on my personal computer, there should be flags raised on who are you? Are you this person? We have multiple identities. How many usernames and passwords do you all have for multiple systems, for multiple apps, for multiple? Those are multiple different pieces of identity. And if we can kind of start to bring that identity together where they know that this is Liz Casely, she is in the Army, she is a colonel, she has access to this type of um, information, she should only be allowed to look at this type of information from this particular device. Now we can start to secure our network in a way that actually starts to help us get towards interacting with each other instead of having these very stovepipe networks. And so this is painful. It is painful because I don't like my boss not being able to do his job. But it's important for me to let him know that you cannot do your job or you won't be able to do it very long. I might be able to make it work right now, but if it's not secure, you won't be able to do your job for very long when it matters. And so in my, I kind of laid out the problem that we're walking through here. So, you know, what, what we have, so it's, my job as a, as a uh, IT leader is to tie the actual user requirement to the system requirement. And so what I put up there is basically, we're trying to close the kill chain, right? We're, we're just trying to close that kill chain. We're trying to see, we're trying to sense, we're trying to do things. And we have a system requirement which requires this global transport that is allowed to touch many multiple sources of data and then support and enable decisions. Well, we could work in our stovepipe networks, but you'd only have the data that's available to you on that network. We want to be able to connect to other networks and receive other data to understand if it would change our decisions, how it would inform our decisions. So what we are working with in the Army, in that soup sandwich up there with a bunch of clouds and bubbles, right? That's multiple networks that we're trying to connect that we all have different usernames and passwords to. In some cases, my middle initial's in there. Some cases, it's not, you know? <laughs> There's no way to tell if I am who I am. Once I enter, I have unfettered access. So that means if someone obtains my username and password, they have unfettered access to whatever is on that network. We're trying to stop that by implementing zero trust, and we've got a long way to go. So I've put some zero trust principles there in the bottom left-hand corner, right? If you don't know them, you can kind of zoom in on them, but at the heart of it, it really is what data should you have access to. But 
from my perspective, what it actually takes to get there are three things, and that's innovation. So innovation, in my mind, is a delivery of a capability to impact. So we can say we have a zero trust architecture, but if it doesn't deliver an impact for the user, then it's simply a new invention. It takes leadership, and I can unpack that in so many different ways. It takes organizational structure, and that includes process, not just how you organize the structure, but process. And then there's a cultural piece to it. And leaders are responsible for culture. They may not have been responsible for the culture that's in place when they arrive, but they are absolutely responsible for changing it, adjusting it, shifting it, and it is not easy. So I'll stop there, and I'll toss it back over to Robin and see if she wants to lead us with some questions. I am not the U.S. Marine Corps spokesperson, okay? I'm only gonna to speak to my small lens, what I know working down at Mar Force Cyber. When I say Mar Force Cyber, because we're down in Fort Meade, so we are you know, connected to U.S. Cybercom and Fleet Cyber. Um, I do know that um, specifically for uh, the DOD um, to help implement zero trust, you know, there were talks about like a, like a single uh, identity, right? An identity management, maybe like a one Active Directory uh, domain where um, I guess like DISA would manage that. Um, I don't think Marine Corps is on board with that. Uh, just because what the colonel said as relates to so many identities do we have out there. The problem said itself, you know, I, you know, the people, the DOD, the CIO's office, um, hopefully they're not in here, is that, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's a great ideal, but, you know, um, to the colonel's point, the culture, the leadership, and um, technology to implement that, you know, that is like trying to turn a ship on a dime, right? Um, as those leaders come in, then more leaders go out, and then now what's the next shiny object we're going to, you know, go after? The other thing that the colonel uh, mentioned is that these many identities, right? And so what if you are to the hybrid part of the environment and you're, not, you're working from home, right? And you, the government doesn't have all these government-issued laptops, and you have your personal laptop, right? And then how can, in a zero trust environment, depending on you work in a different agency, uh, that you're able to, uh, how does, how do you trust that, right? How do you trust uh, any anomalies that may be on my son's laptop that I didn't know was on the laptop, but I just kind of borrowed it for a minute and it pings something, do you know, that type of legal issue, like, okay, uh, I'm trying to access my data that I have, um, you know, access to, you know, access controls, right, for a certain limited time. But just like the, the um, scenario that the colonel gave, like we gave access, you know, we have these cards, right, and now we all have access to this environment but should we all have access to every room in an environment? Like, can we go into the kitchen area, you know, where the food is maintained? I mean, I've seen some guards, right? But, you know, I'm, you know, physical security too, so I'd be like looking around. So that's all I have. Um, we wanted to ask what you all thought Zero Trust meant. So in the aspect that you basically want to have the assumption anything can be hacked, right? Or anything could have already been hacked. So what are, what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about phones, 
Uh, my name is Bailey Garfield. I'm a student at the University of the District of Columbia. Um, to answer your question, to me, zero trust architecture is moving past from an old tradition of computer structuring, computer network structuring, where you have an admin and then you have users, because you have this admin who kind of can oversee and control all aspects of the network, can make decisions. And you know, in, in smaller networks, less secure networks, like in schools and universities, you either have admin access or you don't. If you have admin access, you can sort of do whatever you want. If you don't have it, you can do barely anything. So finding a way of allowing people to interact in a network where their identity is constantly being monitored, their actions are being monitored, but it still permits them to do the kind of work that it needs to do will shift away from this all control versus no control, which I think is sort of a harkens back to the early days of computers and some of some things about computers have changed a lot um, and some things about computers have changed very little. Kelly Davis, uh, technical lead for Winti, SEC, CECOM. Um, zero trust. I look at it from a different perspective when we talk about our tactical environment and what we currently have. What We should raise the question of what exists on our systems. Files, right? The computer, the tactical, um, systems are made up of files, tons and tons of files. Do we trust those files? We shouldn't. Um, when we look at the incident that happened with SolarWinds uh, like a year and a half ago, I was on the hot seat for that for the WinT system, but um, the files in the system are never, should never be trusted. Coming in from a trusted individual, a vendor, files should never be trusted. And what I mean by that, take a look at the file, analyze it, deconstruct it if we can, reconstruct it to whatever parameters that the vendor has specified just to make sure nothing has been tampered with and then move forward with. That's what I think of when I think of zero trust, not only from an admin perspective, but from that tactical, what's on that system, what should be on that system, what's on that baseline um, environment. Many years ago. Uh, I had to do a paper um, on, um, it was a pet yeah, virus. And you talk about uh, vendors. And I seen something not too long ago, President Biden, it was some type of uh, like uh, software, like verifiable um, framework that's been signed in. I don't know if people implement, but pretty much don't even trust the vendors as well, right? And to your point for SolarWinds, right? We contract, you know, we, we use these vendors, that's throughout commercial, the DOD as well, right? And, um, and then we get patches for them, right? We contract them out. Now, how do we check them too? Double, triple check? And that could take more, mo more time, more money, because we're paying these other customers to provide this to us. You know, it's just like, constantly checking over and over again. So my solution for that would be, yes, the vendors do provide us with capabilities for our systems. However, those capabilities are built upon numerous binaries that exist in the, in the world today. And there's Microsoft as a vendor, Oracle, we know who our vendors are and we know what exists and what should exist. Case in point, SolarWinds, they have RabbitMQ, server, SQL server exists, whatever it is, different proxies, we know what those standards should be. So when they exist on our systems, we should continuously check and ensure that the integrity hasn't been tampered with. I know my 
GP manager should look like this. I know my whatever should look like this. So always verifying whether it's a quarterly cycle, weekly, whatever it is, we should always deconstruct whatever files on that system, uh, reconstruct it, and then verify the integrity prior to moving down to that next, that next phase. Harold Goodridge, um, CECOM, ISEC, U.S. Army. I was reading uh, some technical papers about how President Biden, how the White House, his initiative called the Quantum Information Sciences, and also talked about using um, quantum encoding in terms of cryptography, in terms of upgrading it over the next few years. So have y'all done any research in terms of how, what is the level of effort that would be required? No. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Right. We have a long road to go. So I, I will say that a lot of the discussion, so, so someone talked about admins, you're talking about basic asset inventory, like what is actually on the network. Um, I was talking about it from a user device perspective. All of those are kind of tenants of zero trust. But I think what I didn't say, but was actually baked into my comments, is that this large amount of technical debt that we have accumulated on our networks because of the way we've done business over the past few years, where you have I mean, how can that, if we're gonna use the same example that I use, how can that young man that's out there really kind of manage everybody that's coming into this room and what they're doing and what they're accessing? They can go out this door and go somewhere else, right? That large amount of accumulated technical debt that we have from just the way we think about doing things and that lack of automation for very simple things like taking a look at all the files that are actually on the network and deconstructing them and continuously monitoring them, we have to overcome that because we can't even begin. We can read about quantum, yes. <laughs> we can read about that, but we won't be anywhere near being able to implement it. And this is why I say it all comes back to leadership and it's tough because you have to kind of shift mindset to kind of move towards it. Oh, hi, uh, Donald Coulter. I'm the Senior Science Advisor for Cybersecurity at Department of Homeland Security. Uh, so when you mentioned one like software, bills of materials, what we're kind of referring to, how can we identify and verify the assets that are in the software packages that we're buying from these vendors? Also, and from like open source uh, uh, sources as well. Uh, we are pushing and, and we're one of the lead agents for the executive order from, from the White House to implement that and develop tools to make it easier for us to do that. Some of the challenges that we have are one, yeah, getting getting uh, independent uh, companies to implement their, and attest to what's in their software, and to be able, and give us the ability to check and verify that and look underneath the hood uh, from a proprietary software perspective, and then from an open source uh, perspective, you're not necessarily in a contractual relationship with the people that are writing and maintaining this code. So we have to look at how can we make it easier and simpler for them to. Uh, kind of catalog, do the source code uh, composition and analysis and attest to that in a way that's uh, kind of integrated into their pipelines with no little to no effort on their part. 
so we are working on, we're, we have some, uh, actually have a um, program right now with some, we have a Silicon Valley innovation program that has a, a, a several uh, companies that'll be developing some, some open source tools that'll be available to the community to use to help them uh, push their software uh, uh, kind of composition analysis capabilities forward. Uh, in terms of quantum, uh, we're also working, NIST is, is a lead agent on developing and certifying the algorithms, but we're working across several different organizations and agencies to, um, to help us implement it. Right now, it's a heavy load, but there's actually a lot we can do right now. Like the first, right now, we just gotta be cataloging where all of our uh, crypto algorithms are and what things are encrypted by what, um, what algorithms. And you can see that a lot of these uh, servers and stuff, they're unprotected. You can just go in your command prompt right now in your browser and wait see minute, don't say that. what wait type wait of, whoa, wait, wait. <laughs> I'm telling you, like you can see what they're doing right now. You've gotta catalog that so that you at least know <laughs> what type <laughs> it of- It may uh, be some adversaries in here, I don't know. <laughs> now granted, the key is not there, but the type of algorithm is there and uh, sorry, the adversaries that we're concerned about, they already know this, right? So, <laughs> but we've got to, <laughs> we've got to, um, you, you, you're right in that it is a heavy load, but you just catalog where you're at right now. Uh, we are, there's certainly loads first in cataloging what we're doing, but also in thinking through how can we automate and prepare ourselves to be able to transition. And a lot of that is gonna deal with like crypto agility. There are tools we can use to set the infrastructure up so that we can use multiple types of encryption at the same time so that it's not gonna be a, like rip it out, lift and shift. We're just gonna be able to add on uh, capabilities over time. Great. Yeah. Um, thank, you. thank you. That was awesome. Our, um, our Final panelist was, he's working so hard. He was coming from another job and could not get out of it, but Stephen made it, so I want Stephen to introduce himself um, right now. Hello, everyone. I apologize for being late, stuck in traffic. I'm actually coming from the House of Representatives. Yeah, I'm their cybersecurity cloud, cybersecurity expert. Um, there, I do a lot of their, from an IA risk perspective, um, documentation perspective, but also um, technology background. We set up a tool there. He was talking about tools and encryption that we get to see, um, encryption in transit. Uh, we set up a tool there called a cloud access security broker. I won't give you the name of which one they use, but essentially um, uh, that's my bread and butter over there. Essentially I set up the tool for them, help them kind of see what their cloud risk um, uh, really entails. Um, so essentially my background, I've been in the cyberspace for probably like 15 years now. Started off with Booz Allen Hamilton. Uh, loved the company, um, if anybody's there. Um, and then transitioned off to, <laughs> transitioned to start my own business. It's called Terptex LLC. So if anyone's interested in working for the government, um, I'm sure you all do already, but um, different agencies. Um, we're with NIH, GSA, Longlist, House of Representatives. Um, and just pleasure to be here. Yes, hello everyone. Uh, my name is David. I work for the government. I'm a red team operator. Yeah, I'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah, so uh, interesting discussion. So uh, yeah, there's different things we can be doing with heuristic analysis and looking at the baseline of network traffic. So if you have like a demand controller talking back to uh, uh, doing like, you know, using port 80 or 443 or to talk back to uh, another demand controller, then you have an issue. You know, know what normal network traffic looks like. Uh, that's one thing. So over at Google, uh, I think they have implemented keys for every user for, like if you have a single binary that's gonna operate or execute on a computer. Did you say Google? Huh, sorry? Did you say Google? At Google. At Google. I'm not, I don't work for Google. Yeah, I'm, I'm a Gubby. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, at Google they have this uh, this this policy for a lot of their employees, where it's like a token for every user. You know, like for different systems that we have access to, yeah, we need a token, but it varies on system to system to different architecture, network, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, like what they're doing out there, uh, like for a single, you know, executable to execute on a given system, you know, you need to physically plug in this token or do this, do this, do this. So they've actually like lowered their phishing, you know, their their uh, their phishing attempts from like X amount to like practically zero overnight by implementing token tokenization for each user. So uh, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, if you want anything to execute on a computer, uh, so you don't uh, click on a malicious XML file or blah blah blah. Yeah. So uh, a lot of things that I do, no, a lot of things that people do, you know, could be avoided by just uh, uh, having permissions like you know, UAC or user access control, uh, but a more defined level, uh, like. Like, so beside that, though, beside that, so like, even if a user is given permission to do this, you know. There, there might be some conflicts, even though, you know, like zero trust. So even though a user is allowed to do something, there might be, uh, there might be an attack vector to escalate permissions that exists that, you know, so like you can't just rely on like, uh, like what permissions a user might have because as a lower user, you know, I can, I can, uh, I can, execute a like like I can I can do stuff to uh, to climb up the ranks and get a more privileged yeah yeah so I can I can become a more privileged user by things by living off the land and not bringing in any uh, different binaries from anywhere else like from things I'm already allowed to do as a regular user I can already become a more privileged user even if those group policy are in place but you know but so like if you have a bad guy come in and try to do these things, but if you needed a token to do anything, you know, if you want to run this program, run this script, you need permission without this physical cryptographic algorithm, then you can't do it. If like if physically you need to be present or physically you need this token and then that you know, that takes a lot of assumptions out. I mean, then you cover across the CIA, you know, not, not like, full, well, confidentially, confidentiality, integrity, authentication, uh, CIA for those in the room. But yeah, so like my question actually, so um, like this is like network of networks, but like what do you guys, uh, like what are you guys thoughts on implementing zero trust at the system level? at the system level because this is network of networks. But like when you're talking about different platforms, different weapon systems, uh, different smaller things in house, like if you have this ship or you have this aircraft or you have this particular weapon system, you know, you have different parts that are made by different vendors, different contractors with different requirements that are tested separately, but they're all expected to play along. You know, when, when thing like when stuff goes to action, like when we're in theater, I love the question because I have a strong opinion about it. <laughs> so that last part that you laid out where you have all of these systems or platforms that are architected by debt vendors to do a couple or handful of specific things and are kind of sitting in their uh, stovepipe. So the, the pressure is on. There are no new programs of record delivering in the next four or five years. 
And so, right, no real new programs of record. We have what we have, right? So if you're delivering programs of record, you're just adding it onto legacy baseline. It's not replacing what we have right now. And so the question is, how do you take what you have and start to stitch it together? My thought process is, yes, you probably could implement zero trust at a systems level, but that's, that's not getting to the heart of the problem that we really seek to solve. It is a Band-Aid, right? And it starts to get the workforce trained in their mindset towards performing zero tr trust activities differently than we do today and get away from perimeter-based security. However, in my opinion, I think you go back to the vendors, right, and it will take a DOD effort to do this, and get them to start opening up their architecture and get employing it in a way. If I only knew what was inside of the Air Force, that probably would save my bacon when I'm operating in the Pacific. But I don't understand that I could have access to that if it was just architected different or if we opened up those APIs so that we could connect to each other. That is going to be a private-public partnership between vendors and DOD to say, listen, we have a problem. We don't have any new systems delivering. Legacy is what we have. How do we start to open up the architecture or develop software to kind of connect these things so that we can start to get the best use out of what we have? I don't believe we do that right now. Thank you. Um, my question is, you know, we have done a lot of talking about human users um, in these systems, but, you know, I came to a panel earlier today in this very room, actually, where um, the panel participants were talking about the um, addition of artificial intelligence and machine learning into um, military and DOD processes. And my question is, perhaps we don't think of artificial intelligences as human users or the same as human users, but similarly, they will require, you know, a high level of security and encryption. And how do you implement a zero uh, trust architecture when you have these artificial intelligences operating core parts of your system that I would presume will have very difficult time distinguishing between, you know, classified and not classified information on the same way that a human could do? Clearly, we need to have some type of uh, cross-domain solution. I'm not no expert on AI, um, so perhaps you could have punted that question in that particular one. Um, we're kind of mainly focusing on data, uh, infrastructure, and users here, not necessarily deep diving into that higher level of thinking and applications. But um, is anybody, can anybody else answer that question for him or? Oh, sorry. My first lesson was the computer only does what you tell it. AI is going to do what you have programmed it to do with the knowledge that you feed into it. So if you feed that knowledge in, already protected, you have addressed what the end user. So we still have to get to where we want to be before we can get AI to where it comes into the picture. Like because too, right? exactly. It, it, machine learning, all of the new, the new phrases, <laughs> essentially the bottom line is a computer-based system only does what the human person programs it to do. And so if we are addressing this conversation at the human level, that starts it going into that direction. Does that make sense? So I'll add just a little bit to that. Um, when you, when you say AI, my mind goes to machine to machine, right, communication. To get to machine to machine, you need to get down to the data layer. And you can't start 
looking at things as just systems um, and allowing you know perimeter-based access inside of systems. T to get down to that data layer requires data reference architectures, right? And then starting to do this um, data tagging, right? And then moving forward from there. And then figuring out how you start to clean up some of this legacy technical debt that we have. I think as a bridge towards getting towards AI, you will start to have, you know, machine the human, right? Where machine is doing some of the tedious, you know, hard work and human can do some sort of supervisory work until we can get to machine the machine interfaces. I don't think that we're, we're there yet. Um, we are training algorithms right now, um, but they're limited in nature, and they're limited to very specific data sets. As we start to clean up those data sets and make sure that they're tagged properly and make sure that they're secured appropriately, then you can start to chain, train the algorithms to a, an extent that you would trust them. Hi, uh, Adam Anderson, Northrop Grumman. I want to preface this by saying that I'm not a cybersecurity person at all, um, but one thing that I... <laughs> One thing that I think of when I think of zero trust is that hasn't been talked about yet is um, insider threats. So you've talked about you know validating the files, validating the in individual's identity, but you know I think of like Edward Snowden. You know how did one person who's a contractor get access to that much information and then not only have access to it but not be caught downloading all of that information? Um, so that's that's the an area that that I see as a huge. Uh, change from our, our current processes to a zero trust environment and I'm wondering you know what how do you go about implementing that type of uh, strategy to, to prevent those things you know some things that was cleaned up is uh, trust no one right no more data transfers you must be connected to the network period dot dot period um, and cross-domain solutions if you need to take things from different uh, variant security classification levels, high to low, low, you know. Um, I think um, in my particular environment, um, working with the young Marines who are doing, you know, I'll say great work and um, affecting um, cyber resiliency, you know, across our adversaries, green space, you know, OCO and defensive operations. Um, what I see um, as U.S. Cyber Command is the lead agent on tools for our folks to use is that what happens at Cross Domain Solutions that they need is so it's disconnected everything right and that thread is there where I physically what anyway I see people and I say what are you doing I'm gonna do this I'm like oh where you get that from <laughs> how'd you get it in here <laughs> who are you <laughs> no I'm going to put a scissor on you. That's a computer security incident, right? So um, I challenge everyone. They call me the NSA police, even though I don't even work there anymore. But um, insider threat is a huge, um, a huge issue. Um, so my, per as a see something, say something, right? It takes all of us collectively, not necessarily a system or a process or a policy in place. If you see Joe Schmo. Every day I work at seven o'clock and the printer is going clicking off. What the hell are you doing? Why are you here at five a.m.? 
Because I'm asking questions, and I'm telling on everybody, so don't do it in front of me, okay? And I'll let the other panelists uh, speak to that. Um, I think this falls into what we call social engineering and even emotional intelligence. Um, I can honestly say as an engineering major, I just wanted to crunch numbers, and when I worked in manufacturing, um, that's all I cared about was the product, quality, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I spent a lot of years in manufacturing as a manager, and I had to learn to talk to people and uh, care about them and observe what everyone's doing. And um, maybe that's something that should be taught in school. Like maybe we should start having emotional intelligence classes, or I don't know if that would be the right term, but you know what I'm saying? Um, it's uh, networking and just understanding how to relate to people is just as important. I guess that falls into soft skills. And I know as technical people, we don't always value that, but it's just as important. I'll just add my two cents in. I think um, a situation like um, Snowden's, you know, um, thieving of data, right, um, doesn't happen when you have uh, really a trust but verify model um, essentially, you have tools in place, people, like uh, both of you have discussed, like people in place that ask questions, processes in place, but also technology as well that cover the gambit, right? You have tools in place that are watching your network every day, aggregating log data, seeing what's going on, see something, say something, now your systems do it for you, right? You have Splunk, ElkStack, ArcSight, all of these tools that will just, hey, something anomalous is going on. I'm going to alert another administrator. That administrator is going to put a ticket in. That ticket's going to be at the CISO's level of visibility. And the CISO's going to say, cut that access. Or you already have preventative systems in uh, place that will automatically cut access. So there's a lot that probably wasn't available back then that is now. And a lot of organizations are putting it in place. I just wanted to add one thing. Um, I know for a fact when I was at Homeland Security Headquarters, I was told if you are online, like, you know, most people work 9 to 5, 8 to 4, whatever, but if you're working from home or you got a hybrid schedule, you might take some time off in the middle of the day, get back on. And um, But, you know, if you're on at 1 o'clock in the morning, Somebody's monitoring that, and um, like Stephen said, there's more more systems in place that monitor that kind of thing. And I mean, it, with some groups, it's acceptable, but I still don't think it's the norm. So you know, maybe that's something that could be monitored more on a regular basis. Who's 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 on after normal work hours, and you know, um, I I don't know what applications are used to. I got a scissor put it on me before. <laughs> Because I was watching Real Housewives. <laughs> four days in a row. <laughs> From 3 to 4 o'clock. And I got a long email. <laughs> you violated NSA policy 6-7, 6-8, 6-9. Please have your supervisor contact us and tell us, is this work? during these times, <laughs> part of your official duties. So, uh, so they do watch. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to say that. Go ahead, sir, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, my, my name is Greg, frankly. I, I will say for software engineers, we work weird hours. So working coding at one o'clock in the morning is kind of normal for us. 
But I do have a question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think most of us that work in the cyber arena, we, we know a technical path forward combined with process, how to achieve zero trust. But I know like when my organization and some of my colleagues' organization, we struggle with balancing costs and convenience. So achieving zero trust is probably easy, technically and with process. But balancing that with the costs and convenience is what we struggle with. So I wanted to ask, how are y'all organization balancing zero trust with, with cost and convenience? For, you know, just to give an example, I think most people that deal with, deal with cyber, we know TikTok is a, is a security risk, but it's so popular and the government hasn't banned it yet, so we have to deal with it. So it, it, it really comes down to cost and convenience to achieving zero trust. And how are y'all organizations dealing with that? Can I ask you a follow-on question? Yes. So when you say convenience, can you explain that? For instance, well, I'll just use this room. If we lock that room, lock that room, and you have a line outside the door, and you make sure you run a background check of everybody that come through the door, you can, you can figure out and achieve zero trust in this room, but it's gonna cost you and it's gonna be inconvenient to the people in that line. And, and so what, you know, like my organization with zero trust, we, we, we've come up with the same uh, technical path forward. You know, you can build your own independent network. You might not be connected to the internet, but you know, and, and you can, I, I think the gentleman was saying earlier, you have to verify all of the vendors that costs a lot of money. And if you don't have their source code, all software have vulnerabilities. And so it, 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 it continually comes back to cost and convenience. It's just even like the, you know, we've heard a lot about the documents from the SCIF and Donald Trump and Biden and everybody have documents at their houses because they don't. <laughs> but because they, they, they don't want to be inconvenient and go to a skiff, close the door, and go in there and, and, and look at those documents. They want it to be convenient. And, and so I, I, I know for, for, from our perspective, we always come back to we can achieve zero trust, but it always come back to cost and convenience for us. So I, I would say at the end of the day, it comes down to leadership. Okay. That, so the cost of achieving zero trust, yes, it's technically possible. Mm -hmm. um, but cleaning up all that technical debt so that you can start to set a foundation to actually achieve it, that costs time. So I, I, look at, I look at cost in three ways, time, people, and money too as well. Right. And so uh, for our organization, what we're doing right now is starting small. Um, that convenience piece, I think what you're trying to say, especially if you gave an example of the president, right? not wanting to take the time to go behind a skiff and actually sit down and read the documents and bring it into their homes, mm -hmm. is really demonstrating to leadership how convenience is actually putting the organization at risk. Right. And, or or um, not allowing them to capture opportunities that they would otherwise have in order to do business in a way that's different than they do it today. So all these like very manual stovepipe processes. As an example, that's why I put that operational requirement up there. Leaders in my organization would love to access Air Force data readily, would love to access global resources wherever they might reside. But they can't do that until we start to build the architecture that gets them there. And a key component of that is getting down to the data layer, and part of that 
is getting to a zero trust architecture. And so there's, a, I think for folks like me that are trying to tie an operator or a user's needs to an actual solution, you have to figure out how to demonstrate how moving towards that and getting enforcement of moving towards changing the culture of an organization to actually think and do different business differently, get them to say, okay, I can see the value here. And then that's when resources will start to flow. Hey, resources are in short uh, supply. And so the, the deal is, what is a priority? And that is a leadership decision. That's what um, I agree with that. Um, there's always going to be some level of risk. So with leadership, you're going to have to weigh the risk. What What is worth, like if, like you said, if we clock, locked all the doors and we had a whole line of people and it took like an hour for everyone to walk out the door versus the cost of keeping these doors open so everyone could get out quickly, that's when you weigh the risk. And that's when you have people like me back on that um, is that you talk about documents, right? For the last two years, two, two and a half years, right? We've been in a hybrid environment where the bulk of the workforce was at home, right? And we went into a hybrid environment or totally work at home when we didn't have processes in place for folks to be able to read, even schools, right? They had to gear up. So some things did go home non-traditionally because we still had a mission to accomplish and things were, you know, perhaps tweaked a little bit to allow maybe the commander in chief to do his job or other folks. I mean, it was a big sh shift when you had the whole entire workforce, I know in the DC, <laughs> right, to be at home. I knew my agency, um, it says, oh, everybody go home, you know. Um, particularly if you had like an illness and you looked at the CDC, um, I said, oh, I, I got that, uh, uh, oh, yes, boss, I'm gone. But in the real world situation, people were at home and they had to come up with, you know, not me personally, I'm just, you know, <laughs> thinking <laughs> logically. <laughs> Okay, because I've never printed anything in 14 years off the none of those networks. I don't do it. Mm -mm. But anyway, um, I just think people had to come up with some some um, some crafty ways so we can get the job done. That's all I'm saying. But I'm sorry, sorry. You're oh no, you're fine. Okay. Um, yes, Kevin Belcher, Cyber Resiliency Office, Weapons Systems for the Air Force. Uh, question: I know that a lot of the DoD processes that we currently have in place address enterprise architecture from a network standpoint, but doesn't really speak to those weapon systems at the base level where they're actually doing the mission. So just wanted to get the panel's uh, thoughts on how do you, one, address those issues, especially in the current work environment that we operate in, the hybrid environment we work in now, specifically when we're talking about individuals taking laptops, government laptops home, taking them back to hot desk, possibly in their work environment, and then also addressing it from the standpoint where you have uh, actual operators operating in the mission attempting to connect said direct connect systems such as laptops to be able to connect to the, our weapon systems and then also getting back on the network. So I'll take the second part of your question, right? Um, so no, 
it does not address West weapon system, right? It really addresses enterprise networks and Tactical was able to kind of run loose and free for a while. The problem is, is that everything is networked today. And I think we allowed that to come um, to almost a tipping point before we began to realize that we had to start to think about how we, um, how we architected networks differently, how we engineered them, how we monitored them, how we, um, how we secured them. And so in the organization that I'm in today, what we're doing is we're choosing very discrete mission threads, exquisite mission threads. So it could be something as simple as fires or it could be something as simple as logistics, which sometimes takes moving things from one enclave to another, from uh, unclass to classified, et cetera, right back and forth. And we are being very deliberate about what data is used to make certain decisions. And then coming up in conjunction with Army Futures Command Software Factory folks, coders, on how to implement applications that we might want to use today to make these systems tie together. And then we're using a deployment pipeline, right, which includes security in there. And so when we set up this GitHub, GitLab, and we go ahead and we implement whatever it is that we're building, it's supposed to, as it builds, right, it'll hit um, certain security vectors that it may pass or fail, and then you'll know, like, hey, I didn't pass this, but typically before we've just been building stuff and then just throwing it on the network with no um, authorizing official actually taking a look at it and making sure that it was fit to be on the network. Today, that can't exist, and so it's, small baby steps, how we start to clean up some of the legacy uh, applications that we have right now, I don't know, um, but what we need to do is start to modernize some of them. So as we start to modernize old legacy applications uh, as a bridge to microservices, just using infrastructure as code, and then deploying it in that DevSecOps environment, and then letting it run through the pipeline to see if it actually meets all of the criteria that we want in order to be a part of the network, that's how we start to move towards a more zero trust architecture, I believe. When we went from Diacap, Discap, you know, then we, now we all on the same page, RMF, right? Yep, yep. NIST 800-37, and then CNS 1253 and 800-53 rail five. I'm on doing the security, I'm on a tag work group that we look at the Rev 5 controls with the DOD tag folks, right? So back in the day, right, did we ever really include applications as part of that authorization process? No. We didn't talk about DevSecOps. And now fast forward, even in the RMF, you really can't really see, at least me, you know, when I'm selecting security codes, I'm like, hmm, you know, it, it doesn't, it's not keeping up with like cloud, it's not, it's, not, it's, it's the technology is keeping up, right? Keep going, but then these policies the DOD come out with is kind of like far behind. I mean, I kind of struggle with that. You know, anybody else? Um, and that all goes into even the architecture, zero trust, just even getting things authorized, right? Even um, DevSecOps, you know, that came out some years ago, right? Now, you know, we're 
going away from racking and stacking, and then we went virtualization, right? Now we're not, you know, virtualization, now we're in the cloud. Now we're doing uh, IaaS and platforms and server infrastructure. I mean, it just keeps, you know, every day it's a new thing, but then we still have the same, you know, even if you're public company, DLD, we all kind of use the same stuff. So that's one of the things I struggle with, you know, from a security perspective, you know, when it comes to helping uh, my organization, you know, get things, you know, out there. Does anybody else have those problems, situations? And so we have like 10 more minutes. So this is a very good conversation and very engaging. I love it. Okay. I, I will be here next year. So if you guys come back, we, you know, I'll give you my email. And if you want to talk about something else offline, we can meet for coffee. I love security. Okay. I'm stuck. Hypothetical situation is that you contract something with a vendor that provides you some data in the core they let the contract for a certain organization. Then hypothetically, somebody like me come along and say, how did that get in here? Well, let me see the contract. The vendor's not cleared. Mm. How much y'all spend? <laughs> you got to turn it off. And hypothetically, they say, oh, the mission, I'm like, Hypothetically, it's not authorized. Anyway, that's my hypothetical. Any question? It was a question. Good afternoon. I'm Eric Muth. I'm the Chief Research Officer at North Carolina a and I want to thank you all for a very interesting conversation. So I'm one of those leaders. I'm one of those users with all my scientists that want the convenience and not the network lockdown. So I. I just really comment, don't, don't forget about universities and maybe using them as laboratories where you could go to a zero trust. You know, we're just, we, we suffered a cyber attack, unfortunately, like about a year ago. Uh, they didn't get anything. They, they, you know, there were controls in place. It got elevated. They shut the network down. Huge inconvenience. Uh, believe me, the leaders came in and poured resources in then to rebuild the network because the students, the customers demand it. So I think there's an opportunity, especially with our HBCUs, to employ, deploy some of the technologies, things you're doing. You're talking about really complicated systems. Our, our networks aren't so complicated, but they are from the human perspective. So they're very complicated from the human perspective. So it's like, are you saying that you need help or? Big time. Okay, so um, I don't work for this agency anymore, but I do know the National Security Agency, you can go on their public facing website. They have engagements where they help people. Companies that don't, um, okay, two minutes. Companies that don't have the, uh, the, um, the expertise, if you will, um, but they are, they do help people. It's, um, if you go on a website and you look for like engagement on a government website, they do reach out and help uh, small communities um, where they don't have expertise. And it may just be, you know, helping you do some security engineering or some type of funding where they can help um, 
small companies, I do know that. They have forward-facing community engagement with um, your type of situation. And with that, guys, thank you so much. Um, this was a very engaging, I was a little bit nervous, but um, thank you so much for your participation and have a wonderful rest of your day.